You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. All right, well, 1887 was a big year, but so was 1888. Now, you started out by saying there wasn't a lot to to mention about the 1880s, but I beg to differ, at least in some of the stuff that I found that was going on in 1888. It was quite a year. Grover Cleveland is still president, but the office of vice president is vacant in 1888. Cleveland would go on to lose the election, but then he would win another later election, just not consecutive. Sadly, it was the year of two devastating blizzards, the blizzards that were so harrowing that several books were written about both of them. So in January 1888, the schoolhouse blizzard hit the central states, gosh, from the Dakota Territory all the way down to Texas, and it killed more than 200 people. And oh, this is so heart-wrenching. Many of them were children who were on their way home from school. Also in January, the National Geographic Society was founded, and they've been getting my money for a magazine uh, ever since. In March, Wilhelm I died, and Frederick III became the German emperor and king of Prussia. And then again in March, another blizzard hits. This was the Great Blizzard of 1888. Begins along the East Coast, and it killed more than 400. So March was huge. I really wish that I could have started if I wasn't going chronologically with the news that also in March, um, that's when Susan B. Anthony opened the International Congress for Women's Rights in Washington, D.C. So that was a big year also for women's rights. Important to me and maybe a few others is that the Eastman Kodak Company was founded by George Eastman in Rochester, New York in September of 1888. And almost 100 years later, my dad would start his career there in the 1980s in Rochester. So in October 1888, the Washington Monument opened to the public. And in November, our Panhellenic sisters from Delta 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 started their organization at Boston University. And I know that you reminded me that Jack the Ripper hit the world stage in 1888 which is gross. Uh, But if we're going to go for shock value, 1888 is also the year that Vincent Van Gogh infamously cut off his ear and took it to a brothel. So that's a, that's a pretty nice gift. So there you go. The news can only get better from there. My first issue was from March 1888 and it opens with a beautiful poem, kind of like you. I sometimes would skip through some of the poems Um, but I really liked this one and it's unattributed. So I'll just assume it's by the editor or another member from Phi chapter at Boston university because they have now taken charge of the magazine, but it's an awesome poem that evokes the fall. Um, It references ghosts, which the Victorians love to do. And so I wanted to share the opening stanza in rustling autumn's dying grace beneath the many colored Oak. I sat with nature face to face The falling leaves, the silence broke. My heart was calm and far away and thought of sweet antiquity. My soul was rocked as with the sway of mothering benignity. All time was mine as through my soul the sense of beauty entered sweet, and through my heart of its hearts it stole, and I was happy, still complete. The rest of the rather short poem takes you through the stages of life. So if you want to check that out, it's on the first page of volume five, the second issue, March 1888. The flavor of the magazine under the leadership of Phi Chapter is even more academic than before. You noted a lot of the different articles that they were running, sometimes talking about issues of the fraternity, but more often sort of reviewing what other people had to say about things in the world. 
and I wasn't sure that it could become even more academic than some of the earlier issues, but it, it for sure does. Following that poem that I read, or the, the portion of the poem, are several more essays and poems. Uh, one is titled Freedom Under Law, and it begins with uh, the exultation, thanks be to that special providence which bestowed on us cheap books. So I'm reminded that pursuing education and having books, especially back then, and still isn't accessible to all, was even more, more difficult 130 years ago. Around page 60, there's an essay on building strength, especially the strength of mind. And it wraps up with a pointed plea for people to take the magazine seriously. So I think Phi Chapter at Boston is a little frustrated after probably seeing the Minetta Taylor show of her just basically doing it on her own. I am guessing that they did not receive a lot of answers to their, their requests for material. They write, our fraternity, to which we are so loyal, is judged by this organ, the key, and we are indifferent to its worth. Strange apathy. The writer then ends with, do let us feel this, my Kappa sisters, and never in the future wait to be invited to contribute to the columns of the key. But write from the heart with enthusiasm that our magazine may be what it never can be till this feeling of responsibility is found in every Kappa's soul. So it's not just Boston that wants to be, um, wants to be responsible for the magazine. Everyone else should have that same, that same interest. Uh, the editorials that start on 61 are interesting. They offer great advice. And perhaps the most relevant to today's political climate is the call that if there be any Kappa who has not thought out clearly and decided upon which side of the great questions of women's suffrage and temperance she stands, we cannot urge her too strongly to do so at once. So I really respect that they didn't take a stand. Um, they knew that they had a wide membership with a, a big variety of opinions. <laughs> they just really wanted these educated women to actually have a stand and, and know how to defend it. So then the June 1888 issue of the magazine offers a history of the college fraternity system in the United States. And then this is one of the most ambitious projects, uh, which they write about later and their frustration. Um, they share a history of the chapters, Alpha through Omicron, and then the remaining histories will appear in the, in the next issues. So most interesting to me is yet another account of the founding story. When talking about the history of Alpha chapter, they say that a proposition to establish a chapter of another fraternity suggested the idea of creating this new one, meaning Kappa. And when that idea was suggested, founders Lou Bennett and Lou Stevenson later said in their letters that there was, there was nothing to do with competition. They wanted a society of their own. So after 1870, they were like, yeah, no, we didn't know about any other organization. My guess is they were talking about Kappa Alpha Theta, who had founded in January of 1870 and was potentially looking to expand at Monmouth College. And you can tell that communication was still difficult in writing the history of Alpha. I mean, when the chapter went underground, because the Phi editors say, so they're all the way in Boston, they say, at that time, there was present one of the founders of the fraternity, and they're talking about convention. They don't even mention that it's Minnie Stewart. We know that Minnie had traveled to that uh, later 1884 convention, but it's just interesting that they left out that detail. On page 95, there's a new section. It's titled Bright Thoughts of Modern Writers, so kind of like you were talking about the book reviews that they had previously, which I think people who would have limited access to a wide variety of new writers would find this really interesting. 
There's an excerpt from a book called Southern Silhouettes. It's by Jeanette H. Walworth, and it's titled Mammy. The book was published in 1887, and this excerpt is pretty typical of that romanticized image of Mammy, which most scholars now agree that the historical actuality um, is, is absolutely questionable. And it seems rather provocative, I think, for the editors to include that excerpt um, out of the entire book. So I would love to know their thoughts behind it. And hopefully it was one to stir discussion and help people really start to, again, question that, that false actuality. And Dr. Oz, have you ever heard of Jeanette Walworth before? No, I don't think so. Have you ever heard of Mother Goose? Oh, yes. Well, me too. And I got excited because when I looked her up, I found that Walworth had used the pen name Mother Goose in a couple of instances. And I didn't know any of the history of Mother Goose. But she's not the one that we are are thinking of because the name that's tied to the original stories are much, much older. They date back to the 16th and 17th centuries. So uh, Miss Walworth, who is writing in the 1880s (laughs) when she used the pen name Mother Goose, is not the one that we were thinking of. And remember when I mentioned Boston's frustration with the rest of the membership for not taking the magazine seriously? Well, they have a similar lament in this next issue on page 99 in an editorial about the approaching convention and the possibility that the management of the magazine could be assigned to another chapter. Poor Fi Chapter writes, We feel impelled to speak a word concerning the key. Now, either it is desirable to have a fraternity magazine or it is not. If it's desirable, it must be supported. The individual or chapter consenting to take charge of it must not be forced to do all of the work. The key is anything but a desirable task in the view of the present conditions. (laughs) One can hardly flatter oneself that it is a labor of love inasmuch as it is evidently not desired or appreciated. One could apparently find a more satisfactory field for her superabundant time and energy. Oh, that's a bit... Um, tongue-in-cheek, they continue, a baldly supported, uninteresting, and dull magazine is a disgrace and should be discontinued. It is no credit or honor to the fraternity. The key is not supported. (laughs) They continue that, of course, these are not pleasing facts to make public, but each chapter should know what she undertakes in consenting to manage the key. Kappas are wont to have considerable pride in their chapters and fraternity. But upon what do we pride ourselves? It certainly would not be evident to the outside world from our magazine that we had cause for anything but sackcloth and ashes. So dramatic. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And they are like fit to be tied. They are hot about this. So then they end with, luckily, the key does not represent us. Let each delegate go to the convention prepared to state the views of her chapter as to its future disposition and management, or as to its discontinuance, whether the key shall receive the united support of its members or shall cease to drag out a useless and wretched existence. I shudder to think what Minetta would have to say about that. She probably thought some of the similar things um, or had some of the same ideas, but she was such a prolific writer. She probably also loved the outlet that she was like, fine, I'll just put this in myself. And uh, so for those of you who are just joining us, check out earlier episodes where we discussed Minetta Taylor. She was the first editor of the magazine from our IOTA chapter at DePauw University. 
So moving on from uh, Five Chapters Laments, later on page 105, we hear from Grand President Charlotte Barrell the first time, and she is a member from Five Chapter. So it must not have been too difficult to procure uh, this letter from her. Um, she's writing to the chapters, the delegates, and anyone who plans to attend convention, and she implores them to be prepared. I liked this particular call to action to the delegates. Prepare to take full notes. You are to represent your chapter at the convention for three days, but remember that you are also to represent the convention in your chapter for two years. So that just shows the huge importance that is put on the decisions that are made by this, this convening body when they come to convention. So you've attended convention before, Mary. Do you recall receiving such serious instructions beforehand? Well, all of my instructions really dealt with setting up the heritage exhibit. So I was pretty much they all consumed for you. with that. So that, no, that did weigh, that weighed very heavily upon me, but I also wasn't uh, a Kappa at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay. Well, so, f and this convention was virtual. So uh, the next time we can meet in person and you attend as a full-fledged member, pay attention and see if, see if you have such serious instructions given to you. Uh, this issue wraps up with the exchanges, and I am, am back to loving the critical evaluation and occasional praise for the magazines of the other groups, and it makes me laugh. They were especially harsh with our friends at Delta Gamma. Uh, their magazine was new in 1888, and so they write that the Ankara of Delta Gamma is essentially girlish, but evidently enjoys that sort of thing, for it protests vehemently against seeking to rival man in his own field when there is a woman's sphere, just as broad and equally honorable. So then they continue to write, whether our sisters in Delta Gamma have reached the ideal of breadth and honor will be doubted if they continue to publish such unmitigated trash as, quote, once I knew a handsome fellow, oh so nice, then my heart was very mellow, now tis ice. <laughs> Ow, like that. <laughs> that, was, that was harsh. Ooh. My gosh, and how rude to write unmitigated trash. They really are still salty about the fact that they're stuck managing this magazine by themselves. And so they just want everyone else to suffer as much as they are. And uh, they're just as brazen with this next bit. The exchange editor shows uncommonly good sense in the following estimate. An examination of the available fraternity journals has led us to the following generalization. It is absolutely impossible for a fraternity to tell the truth about itself. The reckless perversions are amazing. The writer says later that from every statement made by a Greek in praise of his own fraternity, 25% can safely be deducted on the score of jealousy of other societies. 30% more on account of natural vanity and unconscious exaggeration. Then take away another 25% because of the desire to make one's own chapter appear well in the eyes of the other chapters. And there you have it. You will be left with exactly 20% of genuine unsullied truth. So, <laughs> no holds barred. None at all. So that's it for the summer issues. Uh, but September, I was super excited for September because these fall issues always kind of wrap up either convention or um, are really an exciting kickoff to the year. But you know what catches my eye in the 1888 issue from September is that the first 12 pages, 12 pages are a single column poem. So it doesn't even take up the whole page titled 
the story of our key. Um, it's mythical, it's fanciful, and includes the lines, this the story which has drifted from out the long ago that the golden key to mortals fairy hands did bestow. So it's, it's a lovely story, and I can only imagine if someone were to ask the magazine editors today, hey, can I have 12 pages of your magazine? And I'm not even going to use the whole page. I just, I'm going to lay out my piece as a, a four-inch column with lots of white space. <laughs> I think Kristen would say. I'm guessing she'd give a, a big fat no. We should invite her to be on the podcast. We are. Yep. We're going to discuss the, the most recent issue. Um, and so then despite Fi's frustrations that are ex expressed in the previous two issues, they continue on this one on page 128 with histories of the chapters from uh, Mew at Butler to Omega at Kansas. And then they note that the histories will conclude in the March issue. So they're going to take a break from histories in December and move on. So then my favorite part, page 135, we get to the convention wrap up. It was held in Minneapolis that August. There were more than 60 in attendance, which was more than any previous convention. Besides the news of the business at that convention, of course, there's a great account of the closing banquet at the Hotel West. It's described as one of the most beautiful hotels in the country. They write that with 62 Kappas present, the orchestra played sweet music with an original KKG convention gallop. So we have to find that music so that you can play it for us on the Stewart House piano. <laughs> you know the waltz. Now can you learn the gallop? Yeah, I have to expand my repertoire. <laughs> And I just, I just find the words of the leadership to be so inspirational. They were so filled with hope. And our leaders still are today. So I know that this is nothing super new, but um, outgoing Grand President Charlotte Beryl spoke of, which we now know as Charlotte Beryl Ware, uh, spoke of the one thing that was needful to complete our fraternity is personal responsibility. So then in a follow-up letter to the editor about the convention, a woman named Susan Olmsted from Chi Chapter at Minnesota writes, the formalities of our association are but trivial compared to the great aims for which we ought to strive as women, to live for the very noblest that is in us, to be to the world the most that we can for good, to use our influence for the highest things, and help to build up in one another the truest and best characters. So they're always imploring one another to strive for the best and really have a good, important mark on the world. And this issue is important because it announces that the 1888 convention made the decision to offer the literary as well as the financial support of the whole fraternity to the magazine. Uh, so that must have been a huge relief. And that's, that's really what Boston was pitching for when they said, if the whole organization is not behind this magazine and we want it to represent us, then it's, it's not actually going to represent us. So then they go on with the chapter reports, which lists their members and academic standing. They haven't totally gotten into the letters from the chapters yet, which I think are much more interesting. And again, they take several other groups to task for their journals and the exchanges. <laughs> Funniest, they're talking about the covers of the magazines. And so this one says, the knock-kneed horse and plumed knight on the cover of Kappa Alpha Journal always affects us with peculiar horror. And then they just go on to describe what they talk about. And then it seems a bit tongue-in-cheek when they write that, We approach the shield of Phi Kappa Psi with feelings of reverence. The editor informs his readers that, With us, our journal has been the most cherished ambition of our lives. Can anyone be so heartless as to criticize that wherein a fellow man has risked his all? So 
for totally making fun of them and how seriously they take the take the journal. And finally, to the December issue, Minetta is back. The 1888 December issue opens with a song from Minetta, our favorite first editor of the magazine, and it's titled Always Kappas. And of course, it's written to the tune of a song called The Bridge. How fitting. So uh, we need to find that tune, get you to learn it on the key, and then maybe one of our episodes will do a, a little duet. I'll sing out of tune and you can play out of tune. Well, you can. Oh, um, You'll probably have the piano tuned, so it'll be fun. Yeah. Well, what about Big Red? That's true. Oh, I'm just not that great on Big Red. But if it's a tune, um, I usually can play that a little bit better without without notes. Then you can do the singing. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I love the whole thing. The whole song is really nice, and um, I might use it as a toast for a future Kappa event. But the last stanza really is particularly moving, and it it just takes me back to those bygone days of Minetta when she was the editor. So here's the last stanza. Yes, forever and ever, as long as the river flows, as long as the heart craves friendship, as long as life has woes, we are one in the bonds of Kappa, we are one by the magic key, and the symbol of earthly friendship to us is KKG. So that's a neat, that's a neat poem. And again, big credit to Phi Chapter. The next piece on page two is Honorary Phi member Julia Ward Howe's opening address to the 15th Women's Congress. And it was read before the Association of the Advancement of Women, of which at the time Howe was president. So she was really active in sort of advising and keeping in touch with the women at Phi Chapter. And she was one of the most famous women at the time. So then, ah, you mentioned... Alumni associations, hearing from alumni associations earlier, but we should correct the record that we didn't have alumni associations at that time. There were groups of alumni who were hanging out and supporting the chapters. But on page nine, Ada sent in an essay titled The Danger of Selfishness in College. But then they move into, I'm sorry, the editors move into page 13 when this is one of the earliest rumblings for alumni um, and alumni representation. So in those earliest years when a member graduated or left school, if she stayed in the area, she often stayed active with that local chapter. And sometimes she would even serve as an officer. But as women became more mobile and the growth of the fraternity was much more rapid, the real desire for an opportunity to work together with and as alumni really began to foment. So Ta Chapter at Syracuse, now known as Beta Ta, wrote that their delegate was authorized to apply for a charter for their alumni chapter, but the council did not seem to appreciate how it could be necessary, and the matter was dropped, and they're kind of annoyed by it. So they described their activities and how they organized a district chapter with officers, self-imposed dues that at the end of the year, the collected amount is used to help the active chapter, and they state fervently, we are not satisfied to be an auxiliary. We want recognition in some form from the fraternity. So now we're, we're really seeing these alumni who are like, uh, this is supposed to be a sisterhood for a lifetime. And we have, we have no way of expressing that as alumni. So we now, of course, recognize the incredible benefits of remaining active after graduation and even welcoming members as alumni initiates. Right, Dr. Oz? Yeah. Uh, so I love this early demonstration of almost like a little bit of rebellion. For instance, do you suppose that Phi Chapter told the Grand Council about this letter before they published it? Maybe. Um, the Grand Secretary at the time was Emily Bright. She would move on to become a, a future Grand President. So surely she was in close touch with Phi Chapter. 
and she still lived in Boston, but I, I just love to know if they gave them a heads up. If council knew everything that was going in, if they saw drafts early on, or if it was as much a surprise to them as everyone else. Uh, the middle of the issue invites open letters from several chapters about the question of whether or not to pledge preparatory students, students who are essentially out of high school but not quite ready for their freshman year. And as we know, Sue Walker likely pledged as a Monmouth preparatory student since she joined in the spring of 1870, but she's not listed as enrolled at Monmouth College until the fall of 1870. Many, uh, many entered Monmouth as a sub-freshman in 1889. Oh, right. I mean, she wasn't, that, that was before Kappa, but. Yeah, and interesting that she wasn't picked up by IC cirrhosis, so they, I wonder what their practice was, whether or not they were initiating sub-freshmen at that time. A new section appears on 21, just before the chapter letters, called Greek Gossip, and it mentions news of our own new chapters, places where other organizations have established new chapters, and famous people who have connections to Greek letter organizations. So it seems a little closer to like alumni news that we would see in some of the later issues of the magazine. And then the chapter letters are just that. They're real newsy. And they're not just statistics. And there's a further emphasis that's placed on the growing number of alumni because we now have the personal section that shares news of what members are doing after school. And then this, I hesitate to even bring this up only because we are such good friends with our, our Delta Gamma sisters, but it, it makes me laugh and I think it would make them laugh as well. The exchanges are a bit lighter, but the last entry on page 46 is yet another barbed toss back at Delta Gamma with this. The Ankara comes as we are about going to press. After the scathing review of the key, we turned eagerly to the general matter, and we did hope to find the Ankara as a light set on the hill, revealing to the less fortunate the way by which they might avoid the sloths of feminine mediocrity. But alas, what is it about stones and glass houses? And if only they knew, if these editors knew that fast forward 30 or 40 years, Kappa Kappa Gamma and Delta Gamma would both in the, like the early 30s have their main offices in Columbus, Ohio. They shared supplies between them. And still today, the office staffs uh, socialize together, exchange ideas, and occasionally commiserate in shared difficulties. So um, I hope it was all in good fun. <laughs> maybe the two editors from Delta Gamma and Kappa were good friends, and they sort of maybe had an agreement. But to the outside reader, uh, it's it's hard to tell if they're just being mean or if they really are having a good time. Whew. That's a lot of key matters. Yes. Well, I mean, we had some we had some weighty issues. We did. All right. Well, thanks for a fun review of these issues. Yeah, it, it's been fun. I always enjoy our conversations. You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by Dr. Mary Osborne and me, Kylie Smith. Thank you.